Welcome back to Killer Fun, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Christy. And I'm Jackie. Today, today, we have a listener request. Carlos asked that we talk about Eileen Wuornos. Now, he didn't have a specific form of entertainment that he wanted us to cover. He just wanted us to talk about it, which is great. And we had talked about watching Monster, which is a great movie. Yeah, but uh, Charlize Theron, but it's super hard to watch. And I've seen it before. You haven't seen it. I have seen it before. And it's just, it's so good. But it's a, for me, a one time watch. Yeah, I get that. And I didn't watch it this time. I went ahead and and dug into the documentaries that we chose to look at. And um, Uh instead, so I don't know that I will, but I kind of want to. Yeah. If that makes sense. It's a good watch once. It's not, <laughs> I can't imagine it would be one of those movies that anybody would be like, I have to own this. And they watch it, you know, on a monthly basis. Like yeah. some people are with Star Wars movies or The Princess Bride or whatever. Die you know. hard. Yeah. Die hard. There you go. <laughs> well, I, I look at the movie as something like Black Hawk Down, those yeah. kind of movies. They need to be out there. They need to be made. They're great. And one day I, I actually will sit down to watch this movie because I feel like it's important for right. some reason after digging into uh, Eileen's life and then seeing how different directors have treated her and how different authors have treated her. I definitely want to see Monster. Mm-hmm. But I'm also a little angry at all the money made off of Eileen. That is absolutely fair. Yeah. Really, I mean, she didn't, not that she should profit off of her crimes. No. But we'll get into why this is exploitative. Yeah, why this is particularly so. Yes. As opposed to something like Ted Bundy's or BTK's, Mm. this situation is actually sort of different. Yeah, it really is. So we talked about what we didn't watch. What did we watch? We watched an episode of a crime documentary series that's now available on YouTube. It's called Crimes That Shook the World. And the episode about Eileen Wuornos now, like if you're just going to go look for it, just look for Eileen Wuornos and the Angel of Death. Right, and not to be confused, because there are a lot of killers out there called Angel of Death, and that's right. actually kind of a term people use for a certain type of killer. So right. definitely search the the crimes that shook the world, and then Eileen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about who was in it. I think most of the actors in this were amateurs. Oh, likely, because it was like a Discovery Channel right. sort of thing. So it was a reenactment. Right. Exactly. Well, almost everybody who's in this, this is their only or one of their only IMDb credits. So Fawn Wallace played Eileen. Uh, Cindy Simmons played uh, Tyria. She had one other credit in IMDb. Michael Ray Davies played Mallory, Richard Mallory. Tom Smith plays Charles Humphrey. Jim Martin, who stood in for Mike Joyner. Um and all the rest of the people other than that appeared as themselves. Right, so they were all we have, interviewed. We have a bunch of people who are not professional actors, at least in the fact that they're listed in Internet Movie Database. Maybe they're stage actors who had this one gig, or they're just... People they, who they pulled off of the production team because Discovery Channel obviously didn't spend a 
whole lot of money on this. <laughs> no. And they got thrust into the spotlight. And you know what? <laughs> Editing is good. Yes. And <laughs> you know what? I didn't find the acting to be poor. Actually, it I didn't. Was, <laughs> it was probably one of the better reenactments. <laughs> yes. Because um, yeah. there's some stellar, awesome ones out there that are only stellar because they're fun to make fun of. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So the only really big name in this was the narrator, uh, Tim Peugeot-Smith. He had tons and tons of small parts and narrating gigs going back like all the way to 1970. And right up until his death in 2017, he worked pretty consistently. And being a narrator was a big thing for him. He had a great voice for it. So a little maybe over dramatic. It was a little uh, (laughs) classic. It's classic. It was a little classic. Um, If you do recognize him, it's probably because he played the Calvinist minister in Gangs of New York. And he was a character named Creedy in V for Vendetta. So he's had a couple of like high profile small parts. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's recap this documentary. Yes. Okay. Um, I felt like it was really old. I, I know. Felt, it I did. felt like it was like 90s old. But it's so not. 2009. It's just so classic in its style. It's very classic Discovery Channel, History Channel yeah. sort of thing. And it's still very um, made for the old TVs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was right at the cusp of... We haven't, everybody hasn't gone 4K yet. Most people still have a tube TV where, you know, whatever that ratio is. 4-3. 4-3. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> I knew you would know. Yeah. <laughs> it was still that. So it had a real 90s vibe to me, but it was like 2008 because Monster had been out for years before this came out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting. So (laughs) worth a note up top, if you decide you want to go and watch this, I will link to it on our social media. So you can find that on Twitter at Killer Fun Pod. You can find us on Facebook, Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment. Or you can send me an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com, and I'll shoot you back a link. All right. So the police find an abandoned vehicle. But this isn't really all that unusual because people go missing because it's Florida. Well, this it's is Florida. Kind of, this is kind of the argument that they have. It's Florida. Literally, they used that argument and, you know, it wasn't a thing then. It wasn't, quote, a hashtag then. Yeah, Florida man was not yet a phenomenon. No, it wasn't, but it was. It, but it, it was. It was born out of truth, man. <laughs> you know? I love it. Their, their whole idea was They're like. They're like, ah, it's really very transient most people who quote unquote go missing aren't really missing. They've just passed through, which I'm like, ah, uh, the abandoned car thing. I mean, I personally know somebody who left a car abandoned on the side of the road in Florida. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Wow. I will stop there. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think the statutes of limitations off of this is probably <laughs> oh, long yeah. past, but uh, yeah, yeah, I totally no, we don't, do we don't need to out anybody on the mm-hmm. podcast no. when it comes to that, but yeah. But five miles away, they do find a body, so so that elevates its uh, issue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's difficult to identify again. Their excuses: it's Florida. It's Florida. <laughs> They're like, it's hot, it's humid. There's a lot of bug and animal activity. Makes it difficult for them to 
identify people if they've been out in the elements for any length of time. The victim is a divorced electrician. I noticed they're very, very concerned with the victim's marital status in this. Um, They were extremely concerned with the victims, and I thought they did a a bang-up job making sure we understood that they were people, human, good people, despite anything else. Yeah, that, well, okay, I'll agree with them. They didn't deserve to die. No, they did not deserve to die. They kind of went overboard in trying to make us feel like the victims were these upstanding, amazing people and that it was straight up targeted cold blood. And so you don't have to choose. They don't need to die, but they don't need to be elevated to saint status to to prove that they shouldn't die either. Right. They can be dirtbags and also still not deserve to die. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think we'll come back around to that. Oh, we're going to come back around to that for sure. (laughs) So this guy, this first victim was Richard Mallory, and he was shot four times with a twenty-two caliber pistol. Uh, With very little evidence, the trail goes cold. Then in three months, there are three more murders. Happens very, very quickly, and all with the same type of gun. Yeah, so now there's a pattern. Right. So we have David Spears, who is divorced, Mm -hmm. because I have to mention that only because the documentary did, and they were very concerned about it. Charles Karskadden, who was engaged, and Troy Burris, who was married. A family man. And a family man. A family man. Yes, because people who don't have families are more deserving of death. I guess. I I don't know. I don't know. So, but this fit a pattern, all, all of these murders. They used the same type of weapon. They were in or near a vehicle. They were all white. They were all male. They were all about the same age. And the seats in the cars were all moved as far forward as possible. Yes. And I thought it was very interesting because they uh, mentioned several patterns before the obvious one. Right. The several patterns being the 22, being that they were white men being that there were near like a, a car situation. And it takes a long time into this documentary before they say, oh, and by the way, they were hooking people. Yeah. Like they were picking up hookers. Yeah. Maybe that should have been the first pattern on your mind. It, we're right. Maybe that was the first thing you thought of, <laughs> was that a bunch of well-to-do white men were killed in cars think... with seats pulled up on the side of the road. Yeah. I don't know that they were all that well-to-do. Her clientele was uh, typically less... I would not have gotten that well... from the way they talked about these men. N- no. I Well, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair because I think I only came up with that after my research. So victim number five, Charles Humphreys, is another fit... And Ward Schwab, who is a crime scene investigator, uh, kind of makes up a profile ba- looking at the evidence of these five murders. He says it could be a sex worker, that they were all secluded locations. It was done with a concealable gun, partial nudity of the victims. Yeah. Hello. Discarded condoms. Hello. Another thing that they all said was a pattern before they said... Picking up hookers. Yeah. Just just throwing that out there. Yep. I know I sound uber biased, and I kind of am. But I have to tell you, I I did come into this not expecting 
to have this reaction. I did not expect that I would watch this documentary and feel like it was misogynistic or or anything. I I didn't think that. I, I was actually surprised, and I was halfway through the documentary before I went, I don't understand why they're telling this story this way. And I'm literally thinking, I wonder what the point of that is. What's going to be the twist? And then when they finally sort of talked about her being a hooker and all this stuff, all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh. It's because they couldn't find themselves to sully the reputation of these victims by saying that they had picked up a sex worker. Like it hit me kind of like a ton of bricks. So I just want to put that out there because it sounds like I'm just on a feminist rampage right now. <laughs> and it's not true. I I really did come into this and be surprised. Okay. Because I had watched another short little documentary that didn't do that at all. Okay. So I was actually just confused by the by the take. Yeah. It's it's interesting. And that's what's hard because it's I don't have time to watch four one-hour documentaries to pick which one we're going to talk about. No. <laughs> and I watched two basically like, well, 40-minute right. documentaries. And the first one was just a little different. I mean, it wasn't at all sympathetic to uh, Eileen Warnos, but it wasn't exactly, you know, yeah. glowing this, the other way. This one Ooh. is uh, some skew. There's some skew. There's some skew. But we'll circle can we back talk around to that. Prime time. Oh, yeah. But the idea that this is a female serial killer is... Shocking. Yeah, shocking. Shocking. Which, yeah. Uh, again. Yeah. That, I mean, I get that, but... Yeah. What I thought was interesting was that they noted first the pattern, the twenty two being kind of a woman's gun. Right. And Which, that was the first thing, and I think that was probably very shocking for them because they hadn't seen serial murders with a twenty two. Right. That was odd. Right. Police seem to have a hard time finding evidence in the vehicles. The killer cleans up. And so they start looking at cold cases to find similar MOs to try and maybe find some leads. Uh, They find a crashed car of a man who fits the victim profile, Peter Sims. And they do find a fragile, bloody palm print in the vehicle. I was really confused, though, because they said you couldn't see this palm print unless you removed the armrest. Yeah, I don't know. And I was super confused as to how that was even possible. I think it was because it was sort of underneath. Oh, And maybe because they removed it, they were able to see that the palm print. When you go to open a door Uh and you open the latch and you push Oh, okay. Right? So you kind of push underneath. So so maybe it would have been very hard to see if you hadn't flipped the door around or flipped the armrest around and saw that there was something going on there. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Okay, good. felt like they were... Oh, good. Because I wanted to ask about that. I'm like, what? I was very confused. But that makes sense. If the car has been crashed, she might have needed to pull the latch and also push on the door if it was jammed at all. Right. That makes a lot more sense. But there's no body. But there was a witness who saw two people with blood on them kind of near the vehicle, and they were both women. Then they find another body. November of 1990, the frequency of the murders seems to be increasing, and this is troubling. The bodies identified as Walter Antonio, a truck driver, and they don't mention his marital status, but they do say that he's a reserve police officer. Right. Right. Just worth a note. 
They could tell by indents on his fingers and wrists that he'd had jewelry removed, rings and a watch at least. And the police are just, they're desperate at this point. This is big news. It's happening. The media knows about it. They don't have any leads to give them. They're just desperate. So they release the sketches from the witness who saw the two women with the Peter Sims vehicle. I like to see how the police recounted how they um, how they came up with that decision, how they deliberated on it. I felt like the police did a wonderful job. I mean, they were connecting dots the best they could. They were very uh, overt about not closing doors and trying to find a rabbit hole and force something. I thought the police did a wonderful job in the search for this killer. I absolutely um, and agree. And then deciding to release it, they released it knowing all of these adverse consequences that could happen and had to make a, a decision. That was a tough decision. Right. Yes. Yeah. I I don't think that she was necessarily treated fairly in the documentary or even maybe by those investigators, but I think the investigators did a really good job uh, because it's easy in hindsight to look back and see the connections. It's yeah. harder to make them in real time. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in a transient state yeah. where people go missing all the time because you know florida <laughs> yeah yeah i i agree i think most of my problem with this is the documentary not like the policemen and right. their story that wasn't so much it was the documentary in the way that it was presented that was a little that's that's uh. fair yeah so they get a whole bunch of tips come in and one person who calls in is ted teschner who they had interviewed in this documentary and he reports that he picked up Eileen as a hitchhiker and that she asked him if he thought she was a prostitute and he said I I don't think you're a prostitute but if you are I'm not looking for that mm -hmm. I just wanted to give you a ride which seems like a very nice thing to do and I'm really glad he didn't die yes me too <laughs> then reports come in that these two women may have been staying at the Fairview Motel in Daytona under the name Cami Marsh Green. At least one of them was named that. And so Cami Green was finally a name they had to go on. And they found that she had pawned some items, uh, jewelry and some items known to have been missing from Richard Mallory's car. And, Florida requires a right thumbprint when you pawn items. Smart. Really smart. It's smart. I mean, okay, so it's more work to pawn something. Yeah. I mean, because we've gone and pawn like a lawnmower we went and we had, and we just, it worked, but we didn't have a use for it anymore. And rather than just put it on Facebook Marketplace or whatever, mm -hmm. instead of inviting people that we don't know to our house we just took it to a pawn shop and sold it and i don't think we even gave them our name right i think that the whole thumbprint could feel sort of over regulatory as sort of oppressive in a way but that's one of those situations where you have to sort of look at the patterns that society has established and then respond even if you wouldn't you know in a vacuum decide to make people give a thumbprint. I mean, you don't want to give a thumbprint because you're selling something. It's just that people tend to use pawn shops for this purpose. Yeah. And they're stolen goods. Right. You have to respond in a way that. Right. Well, and it deters people from pawning st stolen goods. Right. If you know you're going to have to put your thumbprint on there. Exactly. Which protects the pawn shops. Right. Exactly. Exactly. 
So they have this thumbprint that they can now try to match up. And so a tech at a fingerprint analysis center, Jenny Ahern, had run it through the automated database and gotten no matches. And so she starts the long and arduous task, which could take weeks or months to manually try and match it up. Beyond all statistical chances, within 15 minutes, she finds it. Yeah, it's like super, super it's quick. Just uh, magical and amazing. And uh, I don't think that there was anything nefarious about it at all. I think she just got really, really lucky. Yeah. Oh, and she says it. She yeah. was just like, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how happy is she that she didn't have to spend months doing this? Like, yes, exactly. That was a gift for her. <laughs> it really was. Um, and the match is Eileen Warnos. She's been arrested with a 22 caliber nine shot revolver. In her possession, she's known to be involved in drugs, alcohol, and sex work in the area. So she fits the profile the profile that they've come up with and the fingerprint matches. So uh, Mike Joyner is an undercover police officer, and he starts hanging out at a bar near the Fairview Motel called The Last Resort, where Eileen is known to have gone. They made it really sound like she was a regular there. In the documentary, yeah, not so much. Not so much. Even the no. even the owner was kind of like, you know, they come and go like they do. Yeah, because it's Florida. Because it's Florida. <laughs> so he learns that uh, Eileen has been dating Tyria for at least a year, and but she hasn't been in recently. And uh, there's a good chance that. Eileen and Tyria may have broken up and that's why she hasn't been in. So she does finally come into the bar. I think it's, it was a while, maybe a couple weeks before she finally came in and Joyner, who's wearing a wire, uh, chats her up, trying to get evidence. Um, and as they leave the bar together, they're both arrested and that's to preserve Joyner's undercover status. And they put him in the back of a patrol car together so that he can... Ask her, like, what's up? Yeah. What, what's going on here? Yeah. And he's, he's wearing a wire, so her response yeah. gives them a lot, of, a lot of lead. Yeah. I don't know. I think they think I killed somebody, which, why would she think that? I mean, unless you... Well, I don't know. I mean... I mean, they're... they're yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're at least involved in something. Well, or you have an idea that they rightly or wrongly have this opinion of you. Right, exactly. Yeah. So then we have prosecutor Dave Demore, and he's annoyed that there isn't more evidence. The print on the on Sim's car matches Eileen, but there's no body, so there's no proof of a murder. Uh, Tyria and Eileen have indeed broken up. Police find Tyria in Pennsylvania with her sister, and she agrees to help elicit a confession from Eileen in exchange for complete immunity. Complete immunity, but there's no body, so they can't charge her for that murder. That's the one where the body's missing. Right. So there's nothing really to charge her with, but she still gets immunity. Well, accessory after the fact, right? She absolutely knew. She knew That's that she That's what she got it. immunity for. Right. Yes. Was the accessory charges. Yeah. Anyway, Eileen is still very much in love with Tyria and confesses and takes full responsibility. Eileen's public defender, Michael O'Neill, advises her against giving a 
confession, but she insists. And she had a storage unit full of stolen items from her victim. And this is evidence that she had contact with these victims, but not evidence of really any wrongdoing. Maybe possession of stolen goods, but doesn't prove that she murdered anybody. They, they tell her, we need more. And she says, I threw the gun and some other stuff off the bridge. And so divers go and find it. And it's math, the gun matches in at least three of the cases. They're able to conclusively identify that as the murder weapon. And it was exactly where she said it would be. Eileen undergoes a psych evaluation by Dr. Glenn Caddy. He learns of her trauma-filled childhood, that she had a pedophile father in prison, abandoned by her mother, beaten by her grandparents who raised her. She was selling sexual acts at eight or nine for cigarettes and money. Tom Brokaw reports that authorities call her the first true female serial killer. And I was like, what? 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 What about a little sidebar here? Because uh, what about Janine Jones, the baby killer? Yes, exactly. What about Dorothea Puente? Oh, 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 she's frightening. Murderous landlady. We've talked talked about both of those people on the podcast. Yep. Somebody we haven't talked about. Maybe we will one of these days. uh, Nanny Doss, a black widow. Yes. I mean, all of those predate her. And all of them had been in the news. And all of them are more serial killer than Eileen. Well, yes. Because serial killers don't stop. So you certainly don't throw your weapon off a bridge when you break up with somebody. Right. Just, I'm... She threw it off a bridge? What? Yeah. She just, I don't know, stopped? Just stopped killing people. How interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. None of that makes sense. No, it doesn't make sense. But trials take place, so Eileen confesses, hoping to avoid the death penalty, uh, and claims it was in self-defense that she was going to be raped by these men, which is a whole thing. Whole thing. That's a whole thing. That's a whole thing. We'll have to kind of chat about that in a minute. Yeah. Uh, Tyria testifies on behalf of the state of Florida. Eileen is eventually sentenced to multiple death sentences, because once she has one... Oh, it's easy to just pile on the rest. Yeah, just pile on the rest because why not? You're you're going to really only kill her once. Right, exactly. So so why not? But it makes a statement and and it seeks justice. I understand that. Right. Uh, An appeal has started to prove insanity, but Eileen really wants control over her own death. Tells her defense team that she does not want them to pursue this. She's reassessed by Dr. Caddy shortly before her execution and evidently other psychiatrists as well. And uh, to see if she's competent to die. And again, I was like, what? What? Yeah, that's a, that's a thing. We'll get there. And it, it makes sense and we'll get there for sure. Yeah. But uh, Dr. Caddy believes her to be suffering from profound delusional disorder, but the court finds her fit to face execution. Eileen Warnos dies by lethal injection October 9th of 2002, and her final words are bizarre. Yeah. I have them. Oh, Let's please read, read. It. I just like to say I'm sailing with the rock, and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus June 6th, like the movie Big Mothership and All. I'll be back. I don't even know how she saw Independence Day. Wasn't uh, she in prison? I mean, I think so. 
Right, but maybe it came on movies. Maybe it came on cable. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. It still does. Yes. So a year later, Monster, starring Charlize Theron, which we've mentioned, came out, and the prosecutor found it to be an inaccurate portrayal. I thought it was very interesting. It, well, how intensely he thought it was an inaccurate portrayal. Yeah, he hated the compassion shown yes. to her character. The there was a intense, like you said, intense disdain. Yes, for how how monster treated Eileen right. Ornos. Yes, her defense attorney thought the execution was inappropriate in Eileen's case, and Doctor Caddy found her to be a tragic figure based on her years and years of abuse. So that's where that documentary ends. But then you and I watched a couple other things. We did. Well, I think you maybe watched more than I did. I kind of went in a rabbit hole, but we did watch one other. Yeah, sort there of were thing. there were two other clips. Yeah. So they they were both from a 2003 documentary called "The Life and Death of a Serial Killer," where Eileen herself spoke with the documentarian. Yeah, Nick. Yes, and um, she confesses in the first clip. And says that she killed these seven men. She was convicted of six, but admits responsibility for Peter Sims, even though his body was never found. She said it was not self-defense. It was a desire to rob them. She was sorry for the pain she caused the family and that she absolutely should be executed because she would kill again if given the chance. Okay. And then there's another clip from the same documentary the day before her execution. She goes into some really wild theories. She does. About that the police knew she was doing this and let her do it so that she could clean up the streets and that they had been torturing her with sonic pressure and inedible food in prison. I don't even know what sonic pressure is. Well, there there is some psychological is torture right. things. Uh, sonic pressure. I mean, I don't know what she was referring to when she says sonic pressure. Uh-huh. But there are some psyops sort of options that okay. would uh, fit the description of what she's saying, oh. if not the term. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. And then she also says she uh, looked forward to meeting Jesus and that she's sad that she won't ever be recognized for the good that she did, which was killing these men so that they couldn't hurt other people. Yep. And that she saved lots of people from being raped by killing these men. So this is a real a real about face. Well, it's a real about face. And she goes on a on kind of a very lucid indictment of how other people have made so much money on her. That was the most lucid part of it. It was so lucid. And she was so clear and telling him, oh, you want to use me for all of these things. And she starts rattling off exactly how he and other people have gotten out of her story, money, fame, 
career advancement, what it's done for other people. It's like this complete lucid thing where you use me and I let you use me. So don't come in here and then be disrespectful and challenge me on this stuff when I've given everything you want. And it was the most lucid thing. And I actually, I cried. I did. I cried because there was something in that voice and that lucidity that amongst all of the other sort of things that was so real and authentic that it almost made me start questioning, well, is she crazy about all this other stuff? I don't know. I found myself on a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories because I thought something is weird about this, like something strange. It was a very, very impactful clip. Right. Well, and it was so interesting because that part was so lucid (laughs) and so really very, very accurate. Accurate. But all the other stuff she was saying... Seemed a far-fetched and... Uh, just conspiracy theory wonderland. Yep. And so it, it's so difficult because you want to believe the parts of it that are true, pull out what is a manifestation of whatever mental illness she was dealing with and what is actually true. And when it's all mixed together like that, it can be really difficult to tell. It can be very difficult. So, All right, well, we'll come back with Is It True right after this quick break. I'm Christy. And this is Josh. And we are the Mountains and the Sea. It's a podcast about Prince and his vast musical output. We look at each and every Prince album. And ancillary material like fashion, videos, related artists, B-sides, remixes, outtakes. We choose a high, the mountain, a low, the sea, and a time capsule. Yeah, those are her dumb rules, not mine. Josh is a Prince superfan and has been since long before I met him. That's right, and I pulled Christy over to the purple side with my wit and my charm. The music helped. (laughs) Join us every other week, anywhere you get your podcasts, and happy purple listening, friends. All right, so there's a whole lot about Eileen that they didn't cover because it was, you know, 45 minutes. They didn't have time to cover everything, but they kind of insinuated that her father was a pedophile and had abused her, and that's not true. He was in jail, but she never met him. Right. He, he was a pedophile. Just he was not... a pedophile. He just didn't abuse Eileen. Her mother was Diane Warnos, was just 14 when she married 16-year-old Leo Dale Pittman. They were only married for two years and divorced a couple months before Eileen was born. She never met her father at all. Her father did have a history of schizophrenia, and he actually committed suicide in prison. When Eileen was about four, her mother, Diane, just abandoned Eileen and her brother. Uh, She left them with her parents, their maternal grandparents, who were both alcoholics, and they legally adopted Eileen and her brother. Um, At the age of 11... So accounts differ. The documentary said it was age eight or nine. Here it says age 11, where she was selling sex for, or sexual activity for cigarettes and money. Cigarettes. I mean, cigarettes. Oh, like for Pete's sake. I mean, and at 11. I mean, every, all of it is just. It's just uh, all of it is troubling and sad. Her grandfather is reported to have sexually assaulted her, was known to beat her, and um, she was 
uh, raped by a family friend and became pregnant at 14. There are some other accounts that it was uh, the brother. Oh, well, yeah, she's known to have sexual activity with her brother as well. so there are some people who... uh, who, uh, who feel like the baby was oh her brothers oh okay so there are some different accounts on that but nevertheless she was extremely young it was not a healthy consensual relationship that resulted in a pregnancy no um and at any rate it was a absolute tragedy right really whether it was her brother or her grandfather's friend or grandfather or anybody inappropriate wrong awful not a healthy, helpful relationship. Here's the thing they didn't talk about with uh, Richard Mallory that may have been salient to Eileen's claim that he was trying to rape her was that he had been previously tried and convicted in Maryland for intent to commit rape and had served time in a maximum security correctional facility and the judge deemed that information inadmissible unrelated to the case which okay I I get it I get that he served his time but it also shows a pattern of behavior exactly and it's hard to know how the judge determined because but it was salient to the defense, particularly because it was self-defense that she was purporting. Right. Unfortunately, you can't help but think that the judge understood that she would be tried for subsequent murders and that the self-defense would not be helpful to those cases. Right. And that... So, unfortunately, it's just not above reproach in this decision I Sometimes agree. I think it's above reproach. People's right. criminal past doesn't necessarily need to come into the courtroom all the time because, like we said, you can be a dirtbag and not deserve to die. Right. But in this case, it was pretty salient, but it wouldn't have been salient for the other murders necessarily. Right. So, unfortunately, you have to ask the question, well, how much of that was pre-planning? Well, and I got to wonder, too, if he was worried that if she didn't get the death penalty in the first trial that she wouldn't get it at all and that was really their goal exactly that's my that's my thought there right that they were thinking ahead about next trial and if she was found not guilty because it was self-defense then they kind of start from scratch and now she gets to say hey yeah you connected all these murders and yet i was found not guilty for this one so right and that would have been very very bad for their entire umbrella case right yeah yes My impression is there was a part of the interview that we didn't see after that first clip that we watched of the life and death of a serial killer. The one where she said that she did it because she was into robbing people, not because she was a thrill kill, but because she was robbing them and wanted to get rid of the witnesses. My understanding is that this part occurred right after she thought the cameras were already off and they were not. And she told him that, yes, it actually was self-defense, but she was miserable and being tortured on death row and wanted to die. Yes. And there are multiple accounts of that. Yeah. So Florida does have uh, many missing persons. They're not the most. 
Oh, really? No. I'm actually surprised. (laughs) So the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System has reported that there are over 600,000 people who go missing every single year. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. Okay, so in sheer numbers, Florida's second. Okay, who, okay. Who, who's first? Who's first, first is California. Okay, but that makes sense. Be, yes. Because they're just so much bigger. Right. So we're, we'll get to that. Okay. So Florida had in the uh, time period in which all of these were, it was a year where people went missing. And I'm not sure what year that is from this article. But within the year, California had a little over 2,100 people go missing Florida had 1,252. Hmm. Yeah. Pretty so, close. Uh, yeah. But California is 22nd in per capita. because, And like you mentioned, so many more people. So 5.4 people for every 100,000 people in the population. Wow. So that's California. Florida's 6%, 6 for every 100,000. Would you like to guess what the top uh, state is for missing persons per 100,000 people? Ooh. No, I don't want to guess. <laughs> you don't want to guess? I don't want to guess. It's Alaska. And in this time period, they only had 309 people go missing, but that was 41.8 people for every 100,000 people in the population. What? (laughs) What? Almost 42 people for every 100,000 people of the population. What is going on in Alaska? Cold. People get lost. People die because they live alone and out there and nowhere else. And then nobody can find them. And nobody them. can find them because they don't have telephones and but they don't see people for months on end. But if we know they're missing, we they weren't found. So they can't yep. just die alone and then be found later. These are people who literally like just fell, what, fell into the ice? Maybe. Oh my gosh. Or they died out, out in the elements and oh my were gosh. eaten. That's a dangerous place. <laughs> Alaska is a very dangerous place. Yes. See, see, this is why I don't like the cold. I don't like the cold. <laughs> and I, I don't, you know what? Wait, how much of Alaska, how much proportionally do we know is like dark for like six months at a time kind of thing? Uh, I don't think it's quite that long. Um, I think it's like uh, about three months. Three months. Okay. Mm-hmm. But pretty much all of it. Does that play a role, you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's perpetually like 3 a.m., yeah. right? Like nothing yeah. good ever happens after 2 a.m. Yeah. It's like perpetually night. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. I don't know. I'm making a lot of assumptions. I'm going to have to <laughs> go down a rabbit hole with this now because I am just floored with that. I didn't expect such a landslide. Oh, yeah. Oh, difference. yeah. Well, wow. Okay. And the number two spot goes to Arizona, and it is an absolute landslide because it's 13 people for every 100,000. So, and that's the desert. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, ugh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, then. So the Fairview Motel still exists, really? but it has a new name. Well, I would hope so. Uh, it didn't for a long time. Eileen Warnos slept in room nine. Um, it's now renumbered as room seven. And uh, it stayed the Fairview Inn and pretty much the same as it was when Eileen was there in 89 and 90, um, which is to say gross. It was not a nice place until 2011. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Mike Bach bought the motel, cleaned it up, renamed it the Scoot Inn. And uh, did his best to distance itself, himself and the motel's self from its past. So unlike other locations, they didn't get a boost from being a, you know, a location really... in a high profile crime. No, but he, as much as he was trying to distance it from its uh, dubious past, he actually improved it and made it a much nicer place to stay. That's so good. if which is great, but it just means that if people want to go and stay in that particular hotel, then it's more inviting if they're going as a, you know, a tourism sort of yeah, that thing. Makes sense. Yeah. Also in the Fairview Inn before it became the Scoot Inn, uh, 2007, it was the hideout for two men who were suspected of dismembering a woman and scattering her body parts around Florida. So, you know, you can't what? stay. Florida. Man, I got to tell you, Florida. Florida. Come on, wow. Florida. I got to tell you, though, Scoot in. That's, that's cute. It's cute, right? So my family, we have actually a little game. We come up with silly names, like the rest in, like I'm resting. You know, little things like that. And the scoot in, the scooting. You know, I don't know. Like I'm scooting yeah, down the road, like, yeah. traveling. Yeah. You know, like we come up with, with silly names uh, like that. And so we're always coming up with them. So you enjoy a punny name. We, I guess we do. I guess we do. <laughs> the last resort a bar yeah. is real, still there, and very much embraces its dubious past. Well, see, okay, they they went the other route. Uh, they sure did. They have a framed photo of Eileen on the bar. Uh, they have her photo on bottles of hot sauce, no. T-shirts. They have an airbrushed portrait of her on the wall with the names of the men that she murdered. They have... Uh, see, they flirted it. I mean, they just went a little they, too far. They really did, Yeah. And this is where we learn this article from the New York Daily News is where we learn that Eileen really wasn't a regular customer. She came in once in a while. But it's interesting to see, again, people making money off Eileen. Yep. Yep. In a big, big way. Mm -hmm. And Florida does indeed require a thumbprint. And you also have to fill out a secondhand dealer transaction form for every pawn transaction that happens. It has a description of the item that's brought, bought in. Um, it has to have the what it's called, how big it is, the model number, the color, if it's got a gemstone or a precious metal, that has to be noted. Any identifying marks, so if it's engraved that needs to be noted on this form and also the thumbprint 
and the records have to be kept for at least a year. Wow, that is a lot of work to have a pawn shop when you could just have a consignment shop. Yeah. Right? I mean, what is... Well, yes, but if you have people just coming in, they want to sell something. If you have a consignment shop, then you would still have to do all those things, just like a pawn shop, if you were going to outright buy something. Really? So all all consign like all consignment shops there that are that just buy your and then resell. I think so. So unless they as as owners go and picking right to stock their shop, you know. Otherwise, right. if you go in and sell it, you still have to go through all of that. I, that's my understanding. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Seems like a lot of paper. A lot of paperwork. A lot yeah, of paper. They kept Eileen in jail for a really long time before they charged her with anything. They had to uh, gather some evidence. Well, they did, but it just seemed like it was like eight, nine days before they charged her with anything. I was like... It's a long time. It is a long yeah. time. So I went looking, and uh, according to Goldman Wetzel, a defense attorney practice, they can hold you in jail for up to 30 days without charging you with anything in Florida. Wow. Yeah. Is that not, that can't be the same everywhere. No, it's not everywhere. That's a Florida specific rule. (sighs) They can, and they have another three days after that to actually release you. So if you haven't been charged in 30 days, they can't continue to hold you and they can't charge you with anything, but they have three more days after that to actually release you. So you could be in jail for no reason in Florida for 33 days. Wow. Which is flabbergasting to me. I just, yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah. I didn't like, I didn't like a lot of how they went about gathering evidence. Uh, Fair. Once she was, uh, once she was arrested. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't a big fan of it. I, I can't. I can't blame them. I, I get it. I, I totally do. But um, but obviously they had enough time. And I kept thinking to myself, they're able to orchestrate quite a bit really quickly. It wasn't quickly. No. I mean, they had time. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. It's yeah. weird. So what do we know about Tyria Moore? Oh, please, please. Because I, this is a, a burning question for me. <laughs> Tyria was Eileen's longest relationship. They dated for about four years. That was their length of time they were together. Tyria claims to have disapproved of Eileen's prostitution, but not enough to not do it. Yeah. Not enough to not spend the money she made from it. I don't believe anything Tyra says. (sighs) That's fair. She's quoted as saying, once I found out she was prostituting, I tried everything I could to have her stop doing that. For one, it's not safe. And then I did care about her, but she never gave it up. I mean, I'm all for like following your passions, whether or not your partner approves. But um, this wasn't really like a passion project for Eileen. It was Uh, all about the money and it was to support Tyria. Yes, it was. Because when they broke up, she threw the gun in the freaking river. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I'm not a fan of this chick. Yeah. I think this betrayal is like central to so much. And, And it speaks volumes about the relationship they had. Right. 
I absolutely agree. Tyria did know about at least one of the murders because they were watching television together and Eileen came right out and said, I have something to tell you. She said she'd shot and killed a man that day. And what her response was, I don't want to know anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep it quiet and bring home the money. That's it. Yeah. Tyria refused to hear about where any stolen items that came into their residence were from. Mm-hmm. She just didn't want to know about it. Though she does say that she did feel a little bit afraid of Eileen, which I can see. She was really afraid to cross her. And that's part of the reason why they broke up was she didn't, she was afraid to turn her in. She claims before then, because if she wasn't arrested, she was worried that Eileen might murder her because she had shown a propensity towards murder. Tyria was not depicted in Monster, so they made a fully new character called Shelby Wall because uh, Tyria tends to be uh, litigious and protective of her reputation. So in order to not cover her directly, they used information about activities that had happened, but attributed it to someone else. That so, may, I feel like that was a really smart decision. That y- probably. I mean, let's be fair. Tyria got out with a freaking immunity. Yeah. She's smart. Yeah. Let's talk psychology. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's just, haven't we the whole time? It's just a whole thing. It's, it's a it's, whole thing. It's a whole thing. So um, I know you'll have lots to say, but I have a mm. couple quick things. Oh, yes. So investigators wondered about the difference between male and female serial killers. Mm-hmm. This was a question that they had. Um, and in Science Daily has an Uh, like a brief of a study. And it said that researchers found male serial killers tend to hunt their victims who are very often strangers to them. And female serial killers tend to quote unquote, gather their victims. They target people around them who they already know oftentimes for financial gain, usually, Mm -hmm. which makes sense for like uh, Dorothea, Puente. Yeah. That was her MO. That's the most common. Now, obviously, that's not all of them, but yeah. Right. It is common. And they they studied this not because they want to say this is a woman's crime or this is a man's crime, just so that they can look at uh, trends. If men are likely to commit a crime one way and women are likely to commit it another way, it just helps them build the profile Right, and that profile is helpful, um, but you know we, we make the kind of the mistake, and we all do it, is we say, oh, they fit the profile. They fit the profile. Really, the profile fits the person. Yeah. The, you know, the, you do the investigation, and then the profile helps you narrow, but doesn't exclude. So it guides, right. not excludes. Right. N- necessarily. I mean, if you're really solid, and you are an expert, and you understand the profile, if somebody doesn't you know, match your profile in some way, that might be a, a 
a first indicator that this may not be the right person. Um, but in general, you're you're not excluding based on the profile. You're including based on the profile. Right. They did find that nicknames, they studied uh, 55 male and 55 female serial killers in the United States for this particular study. And they discovered that the nicknames for women tended to denote their gender, like Jolly Jane or Tiger Woman. Eileen was the damsel of death. Mm -hmm. So very gendered. And men were more likely to suggest brutality of their crimes. So like the Kansas City slasher is the example that they give. And sort of like with victims, they tend to apparently describe the male victims by their status and their job and female victims by their name and town. Right. And maybe age. Right. Maybe age. When was the last time you heard a victim list of females that included what they did for a living, whether they were married? Unless it's mom. Right. Unless it's mom. It might be mom. Well, they might list uh, sorority sister you know, that sort of it's, gendered. It's, it's very interesting gendered. that it goes for both the victims and the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. All right. And I was going to talk about this in the next section, but I think we're going to talk about it here because I think you'll have some stuff to say. Prostitution, sex work mm-hmm. is the most dangerous profession in the United States. In the U.S., the death rate for prostitutes is 204 out of every 100,000 people in the population. My gosh. Yeah. That's horrific. It's awful. So for Alaskan fishermen, which is often known as... One of the most dangerous. I think there's a whole television show about it. Oh, yeah. I used to watch Dudley's Catch all the time. (laughs) Fart bubbles. It's 129 out of every 100,000. What? Whoa. Uh Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, loggers and oil riggers are very dangerous professions and also lower than that. So it's one of the most dangerous professions in the United States and that uh, prostitutes can uh, expect to be physically attacked approximately every month. That's so terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it really, really is. And the reason I wanted to talk about that here, well, I want to say first that prostitutes are arrested far more frequently than their customers or their pimps. That's right. And it's just easier to catch them. And that 70% of Prostitutes, female prostitutes and madams are arrested, 20% of male prostitutes and pimps, and just 10% of their clients, which really everybody's breaking the law. But it's just easier and more cost effective. But it's often seen that women aren't allowed to sex workers, not just women, all sex workers, male or female, or somewhere in between Mm -hmm. they're seen as not being able to be possible to be raped the because of their (laughs) that face (laughs) Uh, because of their profession that they've basically given up the idea that it's possible for them to be raped because they sell their bodies for a living now i would say there's a whole consent issue that they are giving consent that 
things are agreed upon ahead of time. And if the customer breaks that agreement, then that is where it crosses the line into rape. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that was um, an interesting spot to look at here in the psychology break that. Yeah, this is a big issue. Yeah, that I mean, you just because somebody sells their body doesn't mean that they can't be raped. Yes, and that's hard for people to wrap their mind around, but it goes back further why it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Because really, only in the last 30 plus years was it considered that a wife could be raped. This is very true. It was only in the last like 50 years that we actually thought a wife should not be beaten to the point that we made it finally criminal. Right. Right. Um, and and even, even, you know, as recently as recent, um, words like uh, wherein it's legitimate rape comes out of the mouth of politicians as they as they seek to say, well, when it's legitimate rape and then they follow it with something asinine, like, like. their body shuts down, um, whatever. Uh, that's a whole rabbit hole. But the point being that the reason why nobody can really understand why sex workers can be raped is because they don't actually even think that that wives could be raped or right. that husbands could be raped, um, which unfortunately happens all the time. Yeah. Um, and that is still to this day, even though it is officially acknowledged in the law, proving it and getting justice for wives who are raped, horrible. It does not happen. Right. And the wife is considered to be withholding sex. Mm-hmm. They're considered to almost be breach of contract of the marriage. They are not believed. They lose their kids. It's horrific and, um, and it's terrible. So if you think about all of that, now broaden the mind to say a, a sex worker who has a particular contract for certain sexual activity and then when they choose to say no that's not that's not what that's we're doing here that's a breach of contract that's yeah. a breach of contract and then the then the you know client rapes them um, and then not all sex workers are getting raped just on the job they get raped when they haven't accepted the job right, right? so it goes beyond that and that goes to the she was asking for it yeah what as was if, she wearing? As yeah. if as if because they're a sex worker, that means they're open all the time, day or night, right? Um, sorry, that's not how that works either. Um, so it's a whole, whole thing, which is why people advocate for the legalization and the regulation, because then we would have, uh, we could protect a whole community uh, of people. Right. Um, and, and that is a different argument to whether you think people should be sex workers or not. Right. Those two things are not actually the same conversation. Right. They have intersections, but they are not the same conversation. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's a that's a whole thing. Yeah. That's a whole thing. But I thought that was interesting to cover here in the psychology yeah. section, only that it seems like a psychological block to say that just because people behave or do a certain thing for their job, that that makes them incapable of being victimized. Uh, right. You know, that's an issue. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and I mean, it goes back to Eileen. Yeah. Because whether or not she was raped on these incidences where she ended up killing these these clients of hers, these gentlemen, um, she had been raped her whole life. Right. She had been raped her whole life. She had no other understanding of what that was. And then it, it goes to say, well, 
how much of a relationship with Tyria was, wasn't also a, a, an emotional rape. Ooh. Wow. She, she had to go out and allow her. She wasn't a sex worker. She allowed herself to be raped so that she could get money. And it's actually a very emotional extortion. Ooh. I rape you, Ooh. and then you get money. It, there's a wow. there's a real deep extortion there, and and then she brings it home to Tyria, who then she has a romantic relationship with, and the only way that that stays that way is that she goes out and does all of this. I mean, I don't think there was a day of Eileen's life she wasn't raped. That's horrible. It's horrible. Wow. Well, so the only other thing is we got we've got to open this rabbit hole just a little bit. Okay. For her conspiracy uh, about the. Psychological torture. Because you mentioned the sonic pressure, right? And I have to tell you, like, I I was kind of like, what is going on with this chick? And what is going on? And I don't necessarily get roped into these conspiracy theories. You're generally, you're better about it than I am. And I feel like I'm pretty... (laughs) You're pretty awesome about it. I'm pretty conspiracy theory proof, but I'm not immune completely. And I feel like I'm pretty good about that, but you're better about that than I am uh, so that you <laughs> have followed this makes me interested to hear it's about it. It's really interesting. I thought, oh my gosh, I just don't. And there's not a lot out there, by the way. And okay. there's not even wacko conspiracy sites, really. And I don't, I won't go to 4chan or 8chan. So I, they might be out there, but I was like, I'm not even... I'm right. not even going there. I'm looking for fake Facebook level conspiracy here because <laughs> um, uh, I don't have time for all the rest of it. But I mean, I think it is interesting to note that a lot of people with psychological disorders who have this paranoia will actually make these claims a lot. Now, okay. normally they're a little crazier. I use that word, but uh, they're Again. a little more out there, like that they've been chipped, that there's uh, that they're watching them all of the time, and in places where that would be, you know, uncalled for. But well, when Eileen, Eileen talks about, well, and she went there, she said that the police were watching her before she ever committed any murder, and you know, she had this whole like right. lead up to it, which is true. They were because she was arrested for prostitution. Right. She was actually on their radar. She does have a rap sheet. This is how they match the fingerprint. So she's not totally wrong. But if you take it as she's being watched by the government, but she looks, she never says government. Well, she said that the police were watching her and knew she was going to do this yes. and allowed it to happen. Right, this local and I, police. That really seemed, that seemed really far-fetched to it's me. It's far-fetched, but usually it's grander. Okay. For her to really name the actual sheriff... For her to, like, talk about this is, like, a local, like, precinct of people. Uh-huh. And not the government. Oh, yeah. The CIA. The, the big, FBI. The big brother. The big brother. Yeah. There's no grandiose to her statements, which is, I think, what probably clued me into going, what's going on? <gasps> because there wasn't, it wasn't grand. And she didn't make herself more important because of it. She only used That's it as a true. point to say, you all get what you want from me. Right. Along with this very lucid amount of, of uh, claims that is verifiable. Huh. Very weird, right? Yeah. So anyway, then she says the sonic pressure thing, right? Right. And, and we're like, okay, well, when she's talking about being watched in the interrogation room or in the cell, she's not wrong. Um, but then the sonic pressure thing and the poisoning, that seems a little more kind of out there. But, you know, like there are different types of psychological torture and sensory assault is one of them. Okay. And this can be by 
by changing your physical environment with, with sound. Um, you've heard of people who, who are very sensitive to certain types of waves. And, um, and also we tell people if you're a lot of headaches, maybe you need to have a, a technology free day. Like you're getting bombarded by all kinds of blue light. You're getting bombarded by all kinds of radio frequencies, Uh you know, and it's not really common, but there are people out there who seem to have a more sensitive reaction to that and so they don't do well in city environments they're they do better in either suburbs or uh-huh. they do better in like the country because it seems like there's just a lot of pressure from that low din of the city that others are like ah oh, puts me to sleep yeah um but that that constant uh-huh. sound it's like having tinnitus okay right yeah which can literally drive people to yeah suicide i guess yeah. just so, I mean, first of all, you're in prison. You're already isolated and solitary. You have a, a food deprivation in that you are, the cultural foods are taken away and you're giving basic food for nutrition only, which is actually a whole other rabbit trail, by the way. Yeah. Um, so you have this. And then she's, she's worried because she got sick off of it. And now she's worried that she's being poisoned by it. And then there's this pressure, like she's got this sonic pressure. Which could be an amount of sound that's just constantly being uh-huh. forced upon her, you huh. know? And, and it's weird. Um, threats of violence or death. She's on death row. Right. There is a innate psychology going on there. There is psyops on death row, whether it's purposeful or not. Oh, Who fair. doesn't get driven insane on death row? That makes a lot of sense. So here's the weird conspiracy. Maybe it's not conspiracy because people are out to get them, but it does point to the fact that we are psychologically torturing individuals before we kill them. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, where she was at with her peace with death made her a little bit more insightful about the fact that she was going crazy. Wow. And then we go, oh, okay, yeah, well, then you are crazy, and now I don't listen to anything you say. Wait, what? Yeah. What if she did have tinnitus? What if she had tinnitus? Maybe she just had tinnitus. And because the usually the way tinnitus works is when you're in an environment with other sounds, it goes away. It goes away. It falls into the background. But when you're in a room that's uh, closed in and quiet, it gets very loud mm-hmm. and can drive you really actually drive you crazy. Literally insane. Like, are we doing due diligence to individuals on death row? Maybe she just had untreated tinnitus. That It could be something simple. But, I mean, you, you combine all of the things that we would purposely do to somebody, and you're like, hey, that's what they're living. That's weird. Oh. You know, and it, does, it just brings up an, an interesting kind of point of the humanity of of our justice system. And, um, and then do you take somebody like her who was already prone to a certain amount of personality disorder, a certain amount of torture throughout her life and all of that. And it becomes very clear, um, that something is wrong here, but just because something's wrong doesn't mean it points to one thing. It could point to something else. It may not be a conspiracy, but it may very well be a human rights issue. That's super fair. Okay. Now that I've gone down a complete rabbit hole. (laughs) Real life. (laughs) Real life. All right. So I'm going to do a little quick where are they now of some of the people who played themselves. So investigators Brian Jarvis and the backup partner to Mike Joyner, Thomas Tittle. They're both instructors for the Public Agency Training Council in Florida. 
In 2018, the Florida Intelligence Unit created an award for an outstanding police officer, and they named it the Mike Joyner Law Enforcement Officer of the Year Award in honor of Mike Joyner, who is now retired. Very cool. And he did not appear as himself in the documentary that when they showed him, quote unquote, showed him in the documentary, he had light behind him and you just saw his silhouette silhouette. And they didn't change his voice, though, which I thought was interesting because it wasn't him. It was an actor portraying him. Smart. Mm -hmm. Prosecutor David Damore. Yeah, where is he? The the one that was like so incensed at the compassion shown in the movie Monster towards Eileen Warnos is now practicing 100% criminal defense in the state of Florida. Well, it does make more money and yeah. It, do, it does make more money, but it's like interesting that he went from a prosecutor to the exact opposite. I just thought it was interesting. That is interesting. Boy, I'd love to hear his story. <laughs> I bet it's fascinating. I didn't like him. I, mean, I didn't it was like, like him either. <laughs> and I feel bad because he's very clean cut and I'm sure very smart, but he just had zero compassion. And I get that. People are like, how can you have compassion for a murderer? But she also had a terrible, horrible, awful, no good, very bad life. Mm -hmm. And I can say what she did was wrong and still say she was absolutely a victim in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I didn't feel like he could get there at all. No, he just, he, he basically described her as like evil incarnate. Yeah. And I was like, you know, of all the people who are serial killers out there, I feel like this is not the one that's like evil incarnate. Super fair. I don't know. All right. So Jenny Ahern, Mm -hmm. who found her Eileen's matching fingerprint, with a huge stroke of fortune. Um, she retired in February of 2020 from working with the Seminole County Sheriff's Office. She worked in the fingerprint analysis department for a number of years and then, you know, changed jobs as people do, mm-hmm. but still within the same area. And she just retired. So good for her. I'm sorry. Yeah. She retired just in time for. Uh, you know, a pandemic, but Yeehaw. you know, Ted Teschner, the man who picked up Eileen as a hitchhiker, hitchhiker, and that um, didn't want to victimize her in any way, just wanted to help her. He and his wife have owned a Bavarian delicatessen and restaurant called Mr. Dunderbacks since 1975. Wow. Yeah, it's been there for 45 years. Uh, as of last summer, oh. so hopefully they're still doing hopefully okay. Hopefully so. But they're the uh, oldest tenant in the Volusia Mall. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. I just thought that? it was interesting. And, you know, for reading the account from the Daytona Beach News Journal about his restaurant, it really seems like how he seemed in the documentary. Aww. It seems like he seems in real life, like he just wants to help people and be a good person oh that's and great. i was like oh that's really good i'm glad his restaurant is yeah doing well is a 22 caliber handgun a good weird to say a good choice for murder 
Well, um, it does the trick, I suppose. It does the trick. It's concealable. Yes. Um, but it's really more of a uh, self-defense weapon. Right. It'll stop an attack. It's enough to scare somebody trying to attack somebody else. Um, it's if you just you shot once with it, it's depending on where you shot, of course. Right, but it's less, much be... less likely to be lethal. So you can stop somebody from attacking you while and defend yourself without it being lethal in many cases. And it's a little easier to shoot yeah. because it is a smaller weapon and concealable. And this site didn't... Uh, really recommend it, but they said it was better than no gun at all. And if what you're looking for is something non-lethal, 22 mm-hmm. might be a good way to go, which is why explains why she had to shoot them three, four, five, six oh, times. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because it's such a small caliber. It's a tiny little thing. Yeah. I mean, it's just above a Red rider, you know? <laughs> I mean, but it is small. And, um, you know, my, my mom had one little pearl handle, uh-huh. two shot. Oh. Adorable. Um, you know, and then, and, I mean, it's so stinking cute. Yeah. It's a little, anyway. It looks like a toy. Almost. Yeah. Almost. Um, and then I have another one, um, but that was also in the family. And, uh-huh. you know, I mean, those are, they're light. They're easy. Yeah. You know, I mean, this doesn't have the kickback like a 38 does. And if you want to carry a 38 and you get like a 38 special snub nose, something small like that, that's got a quite a bit of a, if you're not prepared for it, yeah. that'll, that'll kick back on you a little bit. Yeah. Um, and that could, if you're not used to shooting a weapon, that then could that, be a little it, bit. Yeah. Yeah. It might put you in more danger rather Almost. than less. <laughs> yeah. It really, it really could. I mean, it really could. Yeah. Honestly, a lot of times if you carry a gun, there's more of a danger of you being shot with it than you actually defending yourself, statistically speaking. Right. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't go off as smooth as you think it does. No. Um, you know, probably Krav Maga does you better. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that would be my choice. Mm-hmm. But, uh. And I, Eileen did have a child that she gave up for adoption that they don't mention at all in the documentary, None. not at all. Um, but uh, it was a closed adoption. We know literally nothing other than the fact that it was a boy mm-hmm. and that she gave birth to him at a home for unwed mothers. That's so, so sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just so sad. But I'm glad that she was able to, to you know, have the opportunity to give the baby to a family and mm-hmm. that that seem to be a smooth operation and nobody's tracked him down. Right. <laughs> yes, which I'm also glad, but I, I I have to wonder a little bit with the history of mental illness and the family and the possibility that it's a brother-sister union that produced this child. Terrifying. Like what challenges might this child have? Yeah, I mean, I hope none. I hope, I hope none. I hope he's fine and healthy and happy somewhere. But I also hope but, that if he has those challenges, he will be in a family prepared to just simply give normal care and right. that this person has a wonderful a wonderful life despite right. the challenges. Yes. You know? Here's hoping. Here's hoping. All right. And that's all all that we have. I think that's plenty. Oh, we have so much. <laughs> We're going to have to have a, a pretty decent bonus episode, <laughs> I think. <laughs> because, uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, Wow. All right, so next time we're going to talk about Fear City on Netflix, 1970s, 1980s Mafia versus the Feds. Oh my gosh, can I tell you, I have already watched this entire series. Yeah. I'm going to rewatch episode one. It is so good. Yeah. It I can't wait. So you, you and your husband 
first of all, agreed. Oh, we agreed. And enjoyed it. Loved it. So I can't wait to. Yes. I know it's got to be good because you guys agreed on Gattaca and that we was did. great. We did. So, and it's easier for a TV show, especially yeah. a docu-series sort of situation right. for us to agree. But um, yeah, so nevertheless. It can, it can push all the buttons for both of you. Uh, a little bit. A little easier. A little bit. Yeah. Whereas a movie. Awesome. Ah, yeah. But, you know, but it's so good. I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. We know that you make a choice when you listen to us. We don't just come on the radio. Please do rate and review because it helps us get found. And we want to be found so we can continue to make the show. Connect with us on the social media. Again, I still have a few stickers left. So if anybody wants any stickers, send us an email. Don't post your address publicly because... (laughs) That's not smart. That's not smart. (laughs) Do send us a private message with your address. And the only thing I will use it for is to write you a note and put it in the mail to you. That's all I'm going to do with it. Mm -hmm. So awesome. Well, thanks so much for listening. And until next time, be kind, be safe, and wash your hands. See you next time.